If ever I love D, my Jesus is now. Thank you, Amy. Well, good morning. Good to be with you this morning, beloved. And uh, are you too cold to put a smile on your face? Because right now I'm not seeing many. So throw a smile on your face. It's good to be together in the house of the Lord, right? And we're just doing our best to combat global warming here in Lynchburg. And so uh, we'll continue to, to do our best to do that. Now, if you have a little one up through grade four and you'd like them to be in an age-appropriate service, you can dismiss them now downstairs. And you're welcome to keep them with you, but you are also welcome to participate with Junior Church. For the rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Hopefully you'll do better than the cartoon today with your loved one. We are in a continued study, God's Plan for a Healthy Church, a study through the books of First and Second Corinthians, in particular, conduct in the church, and in part four, fellowship around the Lord's table. We're, if you're new with us today, we are, we've made our way to this last half of First Corinthians chapter 11, a very important issue for the church, and that issue is fellowship. It plays a vital role in the unity and thus effectiveness of the church. Those two are intimately connected, unity and effectiveness, intimately connected, where there is unity, where there is a, a commonality, a mutuality, a putting aside of grief, of forgiveness, as Christ has forgiven you, those kinds of things. Effectiveness goes up, and proportionately, as they're absent of those things, uh, of forgiveness and a multiplying of, of uh, divisions, un- effectiveness goes down. So Paul is bringing this under the microscope, if you will, the cultivating of relationships, the bearing of burdens, mutual accountability, discipleship, uh, all of those need-meeting things the Lord designed in the makeup of a believer. In that design of fellowship, breaking of bread, focus uh, on those kinds of things, those things are fulfilled. So as we get into this section and we talk about the breaking of bread, and we talk about the Lord's Supper, you realize that the Lord has designed inside the body of the church in fellowship to meet the needs that he has given each believer those needs of discipleship, those needs of accountability, those needs of mutuality, of bearing of burdens, those are, are met inside the fellowship model. And so, very important section of the scriptures. Now, you're going to see, we're going to begin to read in verse 17. We'll read to the end of the chapter. So, you can turn there in your copy of God's Word. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can read, find one of those copies in, in the chair in front of you, or read in the Bible that you regularly read uh, in your time in the Word, and I'll give you some verse cues. We'll stick together, and your, your understanding will be enriched. But you'll see as we work through this, you're going to see one, two, three, four, five times where Paul refers to coming together. So this has to do with the assembly. This has to do with when they're meeting. It has to do with what's going on in the church as they come together, whenever that is. And as I told you last time, although modern churches perhaps do it a little differently than what we see here, and Berean does it a little differently, we still incorporate a lot of these things into our, our worship time, into our assembly time. And so this deals with Assembly. And of course, it's implied several times here too, apart from being directly stated. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about when the church meets, in particular, uh, these issues that deal with fellowship in the Lord's table. Look at verse 17, if you would, and we'll get right into our time together. Verse 17 says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you, here's the word, come together not for the better, but for the worse. They're pretty strong words from Paul. In fact, we'll see some of these words here are the, the most difficult words, the hardest words Paul has to say uh, to the church in any place in the New Testament. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. Verse 19, for there must also be factions among you, 
so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Verse 20, therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Verse 21, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, another is drunk. What? Verse 22, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you, Paul says. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, verse 24, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 29, for he who eats and drinks, uh, drinks judgment to himself if he does not uh, judge the body rightly. Verse 30, for this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Verse 31, but if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Verse 32, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Verse 33, so then, my brethren, when you, here it is, come together to eat, wait for one another. Verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Let's stop right there. Now, we saw last time, just as a quick review, we saw last time in Acts 2, 41 through 46, some of the important activities that began to manifest themselves in the early church. And we found that they continued in a number of things. And the first thing it says they continued in is the apostles' teaching. It means the teaching of the Word of God, uh, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, the new revelation, if you will, that God was handing down as he completed what we would consider the New Testament. Now, he also, they also gave themselves to fellowship. That is the Greek word koinonia. It is uh, as a root meaning. It's a sharing in communication and in life and in possessions. The idea there is inclined to impart. The word fellowship is the, is the idea of inclined to impart. Impart what? Everything. All of your life just with one another. A mutuality of sharing. And so fellowship has to do with being inclined to impart. People came together in the early church for fellowship. Inclined to impart free and giving with liberality. We also saw in Acts 2, 41 through 46. And you can look at that more in depth if you want to go back and, and listen to that online. I won't go back and read the passage again, but they gave themselves to the breaking of bread. And we saw last time that that can really have two meanings. Uh, number one, the sharing of food together. Number two, partaking in the Lord's table. And without the context, and even with the context in some cases, it is not certain which is being referred to. So sometimes you have to work your way through and understand and maybe uh, infer what is perhaps being uh, said there. And in verse 41, it appears... Uh, in Acts to be indicating the Lord's table, verse 46, it perhaps appears to be indicating a fellowship meal. But the bottom line is that the church gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, they gave themselves to fellowship, the preparing to give or share, inclined to impart with one another, and they gave themselves to the sharing of food and the Lord's table. And so they actively involved themselves in both, uh, both of those things, in the breaking of bread, and all the other things as well, which appears to help us understand our passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And then the fourth thing they continued in, it said, is they continued in prayer. So, the teaching of the word, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Just corporately receiving and giving petitions and, and requests and doing that together. And when they met together, those things happened. And as I said, when we think about 
those things that are expressed there in Acts, there's a great argument, I think, for the order in which those things are presented. Placing the teaching of the word as the primary thing, followed by fellowship, makes for a very effective church model. Now, as we've pointed out, Paul is addressing the actual church services, things that go on as they meet. And so, uh, some of these things, these are good things that the church did after Pentecost that we saw in Acts 2, have been corrupted here in in Corinth. And so, Paul is going to deal with some of these things as they've changed them, perhaps been salted by by the culture that's around them and changed them. So, Paul's going to deal with this. Now, look at verse 17. We saw Paul establish the setting. And so, that's where we'll go. We kind of broke it down that way. Paul is looking at the setting. He says, verse 17, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. Now, he started the chapter by praising them and saying that they held to the traditions that he handed down to them and then began to reiterate one, particularly that had to do with authority and submission and the woman's place inside the church. And so now he moves on to this place and he doesn't start with praise. He actually says, I'm not going to praise you. I'm going to give you some more instruction. I'm not going to praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. So when you're assembling and you're doing these things, the present situation concerning this part of your assembly isn't going to elicit from me a commendation because of the way that they've corrupted it. Now, these are some of the most direct, the most harsh words that Paul has to say to any congregation. And so Paul has some very serious things to say about fellowship and about breaking bread together and how important they are in what's going on in Corinth and how that's corrupting those very important parts of being a church. So at this point, it would be better, I think Paul is really implying, that if you didn't meet And it's really hard to imagine Paul saying it'd be better if you didn't come together. But it was so bad that he's just saying, hey, it would be better if you just stayed home because of what's going on there. So what would prompt him to say that? What are they they coming together to do? Well, they're coming together to eat and and then to celebrate the Lord's table. We saw that last time. And now this was a tradition that was established early in the life of the first century church. Uh, The tradition, as we saw last time, of, of celebrating the Passover faded in the early church. And it was replaced by a fellowship meal and this was a common practice. We saw, it, we saw this already from Acts 2.46, which is what we call our fourth Sunday night service together. Acts 2.46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. It seems to indicate a fellowship meal, uh, a love feast, if you will. So very regularly, they would meet together, have a fellowship meal, kind of carry in, if you will, a love feast. And following that meal, they would often celebrate the Lord's table. And I gave you a number of places in the Word that seemed to indicate that was what was going on. We won't go back over those again. But it appears that the setting then that Paul's commenting on in verse 1 is this time that the church gave itself to, as we saw in Acts 2. It's this time that it's spent together in order to fellowship and meet needs and eat together and remember the Lord's death until he comes. It was important for unity. It was focused on the body and and on life together. And they did it together as a body of believers. It was about the church. It was about redemption. It was about ministry. It was about effectiveness. It's about set-apartness. And we tend, when we come to take the communion, and we say this often, that we tend to focus on the small elements of the table. And they are important as a symbol. But the true focus really is to be on unity and testimony and togetherness and a shared redemption and a common head in Christ and a body with many functions in the church. That's supposed to be the focus. That's the reason why they come together. And so we saw in Acts 2, 41 through 46 that they would come together for some teaching and then that both of these fellowship activities uh, are important. They, they came together to do those, the breaking of bread together in a meal and perhaps the Lord's table. And those are all good things. And then they pray for we, each other and, and for their testimony and for God's supply And we looked at a number of places that helped us see that this was indeed a common practice. So everything, listen, and I think we can come away with this at this point, everything in the church is about unity because it reflects the proper testimony of Christ's transforming power. So when they would come and break bread together, when they would come and have the Lord's table together, and they did that in unity and they set aside their differences, that reflected a a common redeeming grace because 
we're a, we're a very diverse group and lots of people you wouldn't be friends with unless they were redeemed. And because they're redeemed, you have to be not only be friends with them, but love them and minister to them and bear one another's burdens and encourage them and all the one another's we see in the scripture. So that's all part of coming together and doing these things. So they're really messing this up if Paul's being this harsh with them in his comments. And so we're going to see what some of the problems were. So they're coming together, see, and just kind of uh, give you a little, uh, just a review of what we looked at last time. They're coming together for their love feast, but they weren't creating great unity and testimony, but they were creating disunity and disharmony and division. And so that's why Paul says it's better, it would be better uh, that you didn't come, because it's not for better that you're coming together, because this isn't happening. It would be better if you stayed at home. Now look at verse 18, we'll see what the problems are. Verse 18 says this, For, in the first place, when you come together... As a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. Now, that's the Greek noun schismata. That's where we get our schism, word schism from. It's not specific what the schisms are about, but it's not the first time Paul said it to the church either. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he said there's a bunch of divisions among you. You've got all your own ideas about how things should be done, and you're all bringing them in. And then you're saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Peter, and I'm of Jesus, and not whatever. And he says, listen, you're bringing all this all in. All that's sin. Don't do it. So it's not the first time he said you had some, you had some divisions. So he still has them now. And that's sin problem number one. In other words, when they came together as a church, there isn't unity, sharing, mutuality going on. There's differences of opinion. That becomes the main thing. What you think about this and what I think about this and all that. And it, and it is apparent at the beginning of the letter, 1 Corinthians 1, 10, and 11, that all those things are there and, and the personalities and the opinions and the people saying what they want to say and arguing and complaining about what they want to complain about and doing what they want to do. And all that stuff is just a mess. And so Paul says, hey, just stay home if that's what's going to happen because you're not creating that mutuality in that environment of unity. And so when you have a bunch of people more concerned about doing what they want to do or what they used to do or what someone else did or what they think you should do or, or what you, you know, they aren't concerned about unity, they aren't concerned about fellowship, they aren't concerned about mutuality, they aren't concerned about sharing. And then you have a health crisis in the church, and that's why Paul's dealing with it. God's plan for a healthy church. This is a health crisis in Corinth. And this is what was happening in Corinth. Now let's look at this next interesting statement that spans verses 18 and 19. He says this. He says, in part, I believe it. So he says, in the first place, you come together as a church, and I hear that schisms exist among you. There's a whole bunch of people with a whole bunch of opinions, and you're just coming together to share them. And then Paul says, and in part, I believe it. Why is that, Paul? Verse 19, for there must also be factions among you. So there's going to be people who are immature. There's going to be people creating this environment. And so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Did you catch that? There's going to be factions in the church. Now, you don't want to be one who, someone who brings them to the church. But there are going to be some there. And there's going to be people who want to, you know, tout their own opinion and do what they want to do and say what they want to say. And there's going to be people who are going to complain and they're going to gossip. And people, Paul says, it's going to happen. And when it does, there's one good thing that's going to come out of it. So what is it, beloved? The one good thing that comes out of it is the ones who are approved, the dokimos, would be revealed. And remember, we looked at that word before numerous times. Those are the ones who, in ancient times, weighed out the coins and said, okay, this is valued. Uh, we've tested this. This is, this is what it's worth. All that. The one, so what Paul's saying here is this, this. Paul teaches that division within the congregation at Corinth served to show up those who were approved and those who were tested. So when he says there must also be, so in part I believe it, for there must also be, Paul's word must really tells us that the outcome of this sin is that true believers shine when it's revealed that they aren't participating in those kinds of sins. You can always tell who the true ones are, who the approved ones are, because they won't participate. It doesn't matter what the reason is. Unity is the issue. And so they're coming, and they're not going to do it. And so this side comment from Paul kind of 
off topic, if you will, reveals again the Lord's attitude towards all of that behavior, regardless of what it's about. Just like in, in, we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where the Hebrew children, when they complained, were punished. I mean, whether they were complaining because they thought it was a legitimate complaint or not, it didn't matter because they were destroying that testimony whereby that they, they communicated to everyone who watched that God was supplying their needs and taking care of them and that unity was the issue. And so they didn't make it to the promised land. They were taken early. And so Paul just says, listen, this is, this is how the Lord thinks about this. There's going to be disunity there, and it's going to be there so that the ones who are, who are approved are visible. So then in verse 20, Paul says this. You think you're doing what you're supposed to do. You're coming together, but you're really not. You're coming just to satisfy yourself and do what you want and somehow think you're participating in fellowship that's at the heart of breaking bread together, but you're not really doing it. And you can kind of see Paul's sarcasm here. There must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident. Is it possible to break bread together, Paul says, you know, when you're just thinking about yourself? I don't think so. Look at verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, there it is again, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Well, because the Lord's Supper is about unity, right? The Lord's Supper is about common salvation. The Lord's Supper is about you've been born again, and, you, and together you, you worship the Lord. It's not about that. You're not doing that. Verse 21, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One's hungry, another's drunk. Now, we gave a little background there. We'll, we'll expand it a little bit today. What they've done uh, is they bring their past life right into the church. And we saw some examples of that from other places uh, in the New Testament and from the history that we know that associated around pagan worship festivals and clubs and associations, they often had communal meals. And it was not uncommon for the food served at, at, for those diners at these, at these community meals to differ in quality and different in amount. And I gave you some examples of that last time. Privileged guests, those who are wealthy, might be served more and better food, and, and they might sit close to the main table or at the main table, and others who were in less social status would sit out further, and they wouldn't get as much, and they wouldn't be as nice, and that was very common. So being invited to a communal meal didn't guarantee something wonderful to eat and plenty of it. Depending on your station in life, you might get very little. And of course, that pagan attitude had infiltrated the fellowship time here in Corinth. The wealthier members of the congregation clearly provided most of the food. And it could have been a great expression of, of Christian love and unity, but it was degraded into this very opposite thing. Paul says the poor would, you know, they'd have to finish their work before they could come. We understand that from the culture. The slaves would find it particularly difficult to be on time because they'd have to finish what they had to do and then come on over to the meeting. And so the rich wouldn't wait. They just, just ate and drank together in their divisions and in their selfishness, eating their own dinner. And the food was gone before the poor got there. And they weren't thinking about unity and they weren't thinking about sharing and they weren't thinking about commonality and fellowship. They're just talking about their problems and taking care of themselves and all of that stuff. And that's not what the church is about. It's not what fellowship is about. So sin problem number two was just a selfishness and a willfulness combined with divisiveness, with schism. Just, I have my own opinion, I do what I want, so they just come and sit with their own groups and do their own thing. That's not unity and that's not fellowship. See? And they began to eat their meal before other people. And it seems very likely that those who began before the others were probably wealthier, because it seems to be Paul's target here. They were able to eat and they were able to drink to the full. And those who came later were likely the poor members and the slaves. Uh, the only food then that they would get would be the bread and the cup of the Lord's table. That's all that would be remaining because they'd already taken the dinner and there wasn't anything left. Now, with all of that self-centeredness, were they going to just move into the Lord's table? <laughs> Paul says, hardly. You come together for your fellowship meal. You come together for your love fest. It's no love fest. It's taking care of yourself and having your divisions. And then you want to come to the Lord's table and you think somehow that's going to be blessed. Paul says it would have been better if you just not came. And we can still feel the, really the heat of Paul's words even when we read them now. I mean, it's embarrassing. To, to, as, Paul, as Paul reproves the church. 
And I think Paul implies his first comment here in verse 17. You know, it'd been better if you just stay home than to come to the love feast. Uh, number one, because they weren't promoting closeness and fellowship, but division and disunity and hostility. Number two, as we're going to see, they were just going to bring judgment on themselves. The Lord wasn't having any of this anymore, okay? Just bringing judgment on themselves. So Paul says, and you can hear his tone here, look at verse 22. He goes, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? So you can kind of see the whole situation here. You know, the, uh, the wealthy are showing up first because they have uh, more leisure time. They can come when, when they wish to come. You know, those who are poor, those who are slaves, they're coming later. The, you know, the wealthy are taking care of themselves. They're, they have their divisions. They have, you know, these are the ones, no doubt, a common uh, denominator throughout from the beginning of the book. These are the ones that are just kind of bringing in, uh, bringing in the divisiveness, bringing in the willfulness, bringing in all, the, all their own opinions and what they think this should happen and who they were going to follow and whatever. You know, so they're right back here, right in the, in the focus again, see? don't have houses to eat and drink. You despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing. Those are strong words from Paul. It's ugly what's going on in the church there in Corinth. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? And this I will not praise you. I mean, it's almost like he's at a loss for words. I don't even know where to start, Paul says. I've already given this to you. This is part of the, the, uh, the tradition I handed down to you when I was with you. You know this already. And I'm not praising you because you've kind of messed this up. He just uses a series of rhetorical questions. He just hammers on the sinful selfishness. You know, they're coming to the love feast. There's no love there. Selfishness, sinfulness, willfulness, despises the church that Christ built. What shall I say to you, Paul says? Shall I heap praise on you? No way. Not a chance. Bring schisms into the love feast. Place yourself before somebody else. Despise the table of the Lord. You know, all this stuff. Man, Paul's just speechless in disbelief. But what, I think what bothers Paul the most that this is supposed to be the breaking of bread together. This is the church, he says. This is supposed to be unity and caring and mutuality and need meeting. See, the whole church is supposed to come together and witness of a common salvation by the care that's shown to each other. See, that's what the household of faith is supposed to do. Doing to one another's. So the church meeting is not just any old meeting. You come together for teaching for fellowship, for meals, for prayer, and doing that, we glorify God. Beloved. We come together to worship God. We come together to celebrate our unity. It's supposed to be pure. It's supposed to be real. So Paul's going to go back to basics, and that's his next step here. He's going to reestablish the standard. Okay? So he, he set the scene. He's got the sinfulness. Now the standard. It governs the love feast and its transition into the Lord's table. Let's look at the next four verses. Paul starts out this section with this. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So first of all, as you want to, if you're a note taker, here's, here's some notes here for you. First of all, Paul wants them to understand these things are not his own ideas. The way this is supposed to be and is not what he thinks they should be. It's not how he thinks they should go. They're not recollections of one of the disciples. Paul says, I got this from the Lord. This is how it's supposed to be. And here Paul just confirms that this is from Jesus himself. Probably during the three years he was being trained by the Lord in the desert, according to Galatians 1, 16 through 18. Just that sample right there, you'll see Paul's out in the desert for three years. He gets to meet with the Lord. The Lord trains him. The Lord gives him what he wants the church to know. And Paul says this in Galatians to the Galatians. He says, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. So I didn't go to somebody who was already saved. I didn't go to somebody who was a leader in the church. Verse 17, nor did I go to Jerusalem, to those who were apostles before me. 
but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. And then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. So Paul has spent some time with the Lord. So when he says this is from the Lord, it is. It's the Lord's words to him to give to the church. And I think it's, it's interesting, and Acts 9.23 can confirm that for you, just if you need some shoring up there. But Paul just says, what am I about to tell you? I was told by the Lord. And I think it's interesting to point out, just because there's a footnote, that this is the earliest account of the actual practice of the Lord's table in the early church. Now, I realize that you have the Gospels, but keep in mind that most likely Paul's letter here was written before they were written. So what we have here is Paul relating to the church what's actually going on in the early church, what the Lord said was to go on, even though Paul wasn't there at that Seder dinner, at the Passover meal, where the Lord put it into practice. So, we know it was instituted by the Lord when he fulfilled the Passover. His instructions were clear that the church was to do it. But here we see the actual practice going on in the church that Paul says is to go on in the church, marred, of course, by divisions and self-centeredness here, but being celebrated nevertheless. And Paul is having to correct it and make sure that it is as it's supposed to be. So Paul says, I received. He says, I also delivered. And those really verbs are really procedural terms for handing over traditions. I received them and I delivered them. And that's what's being spoken of here. Both of these verbs are the aorist active indicative. In other words, this is, was given to me. I'm giving it to you. It happened in the past. You've already heard it. This is a repeat, if you will, of what's already gone on. Paul received his instruction from the Lord about the Lord's table in the past. And then Paul has already delivered this tradition to them in the past. And so this is obviously a repeat. Otherwise, in Corinth, they wouldn't know, would they? Because most of them were Gentiles saved out of paganism. So they wouldn't know they were supposed to celebrate the Lord's table. So obviously, Paul has given them that instruction in the past, and that really confirms it. I received, I also delivered. In the past, I got this, I gave it to you. And so this is what's going on. And they've messed it up, so he wants them to get it right. It's a repeat. I received, I delivered. That the Lord Jesus, in the night he, in which he was betrayed... Okay, so Paul just points out that even in this fulfillment of the Passover, where the Seder dinner being enjoyed by the Lord and his disciples, even in the middle of this precursor to the love feast, so the Passover, as we saw last time, is going to move out of favor. They're not going to celebrate it anymore. Why? Because the great place of redemption now is not deliverance from Egypt. That was all pointing towards the Lamb of God, the true sacrifice, the true Lamb. So that, when, when, when Jews and when believers were going to think, where was the great deliverance occurring? The, the Jews would think, okay, it occurred in Egypt when we were delivered out of slavery. But now that's not it anymore, is it? It's the cross. That's the great moment of deliverance for all mankind. And so the Seder dinner fell away, the Passover dinner fell away, the love feast began to take its place. So he just points out, in this fulfillment of the Passover, the truth was that there was an individual who didn't regard what was going on as more important than money. In the middle of this dinner, right away, there was a broken fellowship. The Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed. So he's saying, listen, even at the beginning, there was already sinfulness in the group. There was already a marring of this fellowship that was supposed to go on. So the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. Look at verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's stop right there. Paul repeats then what Jesus told him. But Jesus' actions and his words were not only to show what would eventually happen the next day and its meaning. In other words, that his body would be broken like the bread in his hand and that his blood would be poured out like the wine in the cup to atone for the sin of all mankind. It wasn't just to show what was going to happen. 
and establish a new covenant, not of law, but of grace. But it was also to be repeated in the future as the key way to bring him into remembrance of his people. It wasn't just to say, okay, this is, this is going to, even the disciples don't realize what's going to happen. Even in, Gethsemane, in the garden, they're still concerned. And so he says, it's not just to show, okay, my body will be broken. It's not just to show my blood will be poured out. It's not just that. It is that. But he's establishing it so his people will continue to do it. And they'll repeat it in the future as the key way to bring him to the remembrance of his people. And what has happened and how they have this marvelous redemption. Exodus 12, 14. That's what the Lord told Moses to do as well, a remembrance. So the first one was a remembrance. And this one that he's setting up is to be a remembrance. Exodus 12, 14. Uh, the Lord tells Moses, now this day, speaking of the Passover, will be a memorial for, to you, and you'll celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You're to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. You're going to remember, he says, throughout your generations, that I delivered you. The great moment of redemption was when I brought you out of Egypt and took you to the promised land. And so now the Lord, as he replaces this with uh, the time of breaking the Lord's table, he is going to, he's doing the exact same thing. He's not just showing what's going to happen on the cross. And what's going to happen spiritually, he's showing what should happen in the church from then on. The Passover was a memorial to redemption, but that redemptive moment in history where the Lord passes over the sins of his people and spared them judgment because of the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the doorpost, that redemptive moment was replaced by this one where the sins of the world and the wrath of God was placed on Jesus. And the great redemptive plan of God was fulfilled. And Jesus told them to celebrate it and in doing it to remember him. So, this great hymn, I know that you know I like Isaac Watts. He, he wrote over 750 hymns, and only just a very few were ever put to music, but they are marvelous. I want to read you one. I just, as I was just kind of doing some research this week, I just really loved. Just listen to it and enjoy his, his words as he expresses it this way. He says, Blessed feast of love divine, tis grace that makes us free to feed upon this bread and wine in memory, Lord, of thee. Stanza two, that blood which flowed for sin in symbol here we see and feel the blessed pledge within that we are loved of thee. Stanza three, oh, if this glimpse of love be so divinely sweet, what will it be, my Lord above, thy gladdening smile to meet, to see thee face to face, thy perfect likeness wear, and all thy ways, O wondrous grace, through endless years declare. Jesus invites his saints to meet around his board. Here pardoned rebels sit and hold communion with their Lord. Thus do the bread and wine revive our fainting breath by union with our living Lord and interest in his death. Our Heavenly Father calls Christ and his members one, we, the young children of his love, and he, the firstborn son. Let all our powers be joined, his glorious name to raise. Pleasure and love fill every mind, and every voice be praised. Jesus, we thus obey thy last and kindest word, and in thine own appointed way we come to meet our Lord. Isn't that great? He just captured the whole thing, didn't he? He captured the memory. He captured what it pointed to, and that it was to be repeated. And it just appears that the Lord's point, and of course Paul's point, that the emphasis here is in remembering together. So when they're bringing all this garbage into it, Paul just says, listen, it would have been better if he just didn't come. Because this isn't fellowship, and this isn't breaking bread together, and this isn't the Lord's table. This is not what he had in mind with these attitudes you're bringing. 
And it's so severe that next week, because we won't get to this week, next week, he's just going to say, this is what happens to you as a result of you bringing this to the church. Now look at verse 24. Paul just relates Jesus' words. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Why did the Lord become incarnate? For himself? No. For you. Why did Jesus come into this world and suffer what he suffered? For you. This is my body, he says, for you. Why did he suffer the hatred and the jeers and the mocking and despising and plotting of all the people who hated him? For you. This is my body for you, he said. Remember that. Why did he go to the garden and pour out his heart in anguish? Why did he sweat great drops of blood? Why did he endure the cross, despising the shame? For you. This is my body for you, he said. It's for you. Luke twenty-two twenty records these words, and in the same way he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out is for you. New covenant in my blood. Why did he allow the Romans to crucify him? To put a crown of thorns on his head and nails through his hands and feet and endure the flogging and the ridicule for you. To pour out a new covenant for you and took away the guilt and punishment for sin. In his selfless act, he completed the redemption for all who would believe. And the church is called to remember that together, to remember that he walked around the room before the meal and he washed their filthy feet. Remember his sacrifice. Remember he took the form of a servant. Remember he gave up his rights and his position. To remember he made himself obedient to death. Can you see how beneficial that is, beloved, to fellowship? Right? I mean, if that's what we're remembering, which is what the Lord wants us to remember, his broken body and his spilled out blood, and all that was contained in his walk with them, then that's what fellowship looks like. And that's why when they're bringing these attitudes and bringing uh, the selfishness and schism in, he's like, this, this cannot be. Am I going to praise you? No way. I can't even think of words to say enough to you to correct this instance. And when he says the word remember, Greek noun anamnesis, when you eat the broken, when you eat the broken bread, do this in remembrance as often as you drink it, re- represents the new covenant in my blood, do it in remembrance. I don't think the word remember, see, in our modern vernacular, really captures the idea that the ancient language wants us to understand. We're used to saying, I remember my anniversary. <laughs> you know, didn't miss it, I'm good. You know, I remembered your birthday. Right? I mean, we're, we're used to it coming back to our mind. We're like, oh, whew, almost forgot that. I, I almost forgot, you know, I almost forgot that birthday. I got it covered. I remember the meeting. I almost missed the meeting because I forgot we were going to have the meeting, but I remembered. But the word here means that word remembrance, anamnesis, is to weigh well and consider. Our idea of remembering is a little different than what the ancients would have thought when we had the word anamnesis. Because we come together to the table of the Lord with our minds a million miles away, see, which is what the Corinthians were doing, obviously. And you haven't even remembered the Lord weighing well and considering him. That's what we're supposed to weigh well and consider. What? It's a new covenant for you. Guilt and punishment for sin is taken. He washed their feet. He sacrificed for them. He took the form of a servant. He gave up his rights and position. See? He became incarnate for you. He suffered what he suffered for you. The hatred, the jeers, the mocking, the despising for you the plotting of the people who hated him. He went to the garden, poured out in anguish. He sweat great drops of blood, endured the cross, despising the shame for you, see? Weigh well and consider. As you come to this uh, love feast, as you come later to the table, weigh well and consider. For an anniversary, so we put it how it's supposed to be, if we want to really remember an anniversary right, 
we would recall the courtship and the wedding and the years together and consider them and express them. See? And quite frankly, when we do it like that, things are much better at home and in our relationships, aren't they? Other than just remembering the anniversary, remembering what we're supposed to weigh well and consider. And that's exactly what the Lord is passing down to Paul. Weigh it well. Bring the magnitude of your salvation into the now. And it will impact how you think and what you do and how you express yourself. Is it isn't just, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I happened to, I, it happened back in, you know, 2,000 years ago. He died on the cross. I remember, I remember. He died 2,000 years ago. I remember that. No, it's reaching back there to the event to pull it up into the present so that I'm living in the conscious presence of Jesus Christ, letting those thoughts permeate my mind, my soul, my heart, with the reality of who Christ was and, and the one whose name we carry and how that should impact us. That's what Paul is bringing the standard back for. This is what it's all about, he says. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilled for you. Remember me when you do this. Not just that. Everything that led up to it and everything that happened after it, it's all part of bringing it to mind to weigh it well and consider it. That's the, es that's the essence of it. That solves the issues, Paul says, are at work here and very negative and, and bad for the health of the church. Fourthly, Jesus is saying, he says, do this, and when you do it, see, would you call to mind me? Not just my dying for you, but my living for you, my whole incarnation. Would you commune with that in your mind? See? He says, will you take this bread will you, and you eat it? Will you do it, weighing it well, considering me in your mind? And all that I've done for you, my whole life, and all my examples I gave to you, all my commands I left for you to follow, after all it was for you, would you commune with that reality? See, that's the issue. And then Paul reminds them of one more thing as he reestablished the standard. He says, verse 26, look there if you would. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim kata and galete. That's a Greek verb, present, active, indicative. You are actively proclaiming for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup. That's the present reality. You're a messenger of, a proclaimer of the gospel, of the Lord's death until he comes. Christ died according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose according to the scriptures. So not only are we to understand that the sacrifice was for us, we are to bring it to our conscious minds, consider it, weigh out all of that that he did and said and modeled for us. And as we partake of it, we renew the belief that incorporated that payment to our account and we refresh that covenant and that commitment with him. So principle number five, when we do that correctly, we proclaim the right gospel we hope for his anticipated return. We proclaim the right one. You see, we come disjointed, we come with disunity, we come with selfishness, we come with complaints, we come with... We are not proclaiming the correct gospel. That isn't the Jesus we're supposed to be proclaiming, see? For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim. It is the present reality that you're a messenger of the gospel. Is it the correct one, see? Which is why Paul's so concerned about it when they come here for fellowship and they're coming and bringing all the schism to it. That's not the gospel that's supposed to be proclaimed. That's not showing there's a common salvation that changed people and they put their own self last and other people first and they, they be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, forgave you and forgive you all your other, everybody who has an offense against you or forgive all those who do things to you. Why? Because this is what God ordained for you to do. This, this is just the way it looks, see. We proclaim the correct gospel. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim you make present that reality of the Lord's death until he comes. 
It's a special place and a special message. See, he's coming back, so we better pay attention, Paul reminds the church. And when you come to it, Paul says, you'd better come with the right heart. He's going to give us the right way to come, starting in verses 27 through 32. And with that, he's going to give the church the consequences of coming to the table in an unworthy manner. So he, his reminder of the traditions is no empty reminder. I'm resetting the standard for you. This is not empty. I want to preserve you because the direction you're going, he says to them, is not the direction you want to go, and it's going to result in the Lord moving in and discipline among you, and he's already done that. So look at verse 27. We'll just finish up with this. Therefore, so you know what he's talking about now, right? In light of what I just said, in light of the sin situation you're bringing into the love feast and the Lord's table, in, in light of what you now know is the standard and what the Lord wants you to bring to mind and remember and weigh out and consider as you come to this feast and as you come to the breaking of bread together. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body of, and blood of the Lord. So who's he talking about? Listen, you're wading in there with all your schisms and all your divisions and all your complaints and whatever, and you're coming in there, and you're not waiting on each other, just taking care of yourself and you're selfish and all that stuff. As you wade in there with that, consider this, therefore, whoever eats the bread drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. And what would that be referring to, beloved? Everything he just got through talking about, okay? The, the continuing pride problem inside the Corinthian church, the continuing selfishness and schism and division and backbiting and, and gossip and all the stuff, all that stuff. You, you come to the Lord's table, you come to the love feast, you come to the Lord's table, and you come with that, you come in an unworthy manner. And listen to what he says. This is so overwhelming. Shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Who's he talking to? He's talking to believers. He's talking to the church. Can you imagine that? So we've seen the setting, we've seen the sin, we've seen the standard. We're going to see severe discipline and spiritual checkup. And one that can be and one that is to be. Part of the fellowship time they share, and we're going to go as far as we can, and we're almost out of time, but these last two, discipline and self-examination, go back and forth, and we'll just identify them as they come up. So he's going to say what the discipline looks like. He's going to say what should be going on to avoid it. He's going to go back and forth like that, and so we'll just do that, okay? And so here's the thing. It's now obvious that Paul is turning his attention back to this unacceptable behavior of the Corinthians as they come to the fellowship time of breaking bread together and entering into the Lord's table. He set up this, he put the, he put, he gave them the setting, he, he gave them what the sins were, and then he gave the, the standard renewed, what it's supposed to look like, and what we're supposed to weigh well and consider. And he's going to come in here and say, listen, and this is the discipline, and this is what you should do to spiritually check yourself up. Okay? So, verse 27, we see the first principle. Okay? And here it is. Paul cautions the readers concerning the consequences of their action, and he gives them our first principle. It refers to discipline, to eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord unworthily, that is, in circumstances of schisms, divisions, discord, greed, selfishness, insensitivity, whatever it is, okay, all that stuff that's coming in from Corinth, whatever happens in the modern church, if you're coming in apart from unity, Catch Paul's obvious meaning here. If you're coming into this time with that in your life and you're not weighing well and considering Christ's life and all that he did and everything that that, that breaking of bread for you and spilling of blood for you uh, implies for us, then if you're coming into this time with that in your life, therefore it, it's to be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That is, you share in the guilt of his death. Is there a more horrifying thing that we 
become active. We all recognize that our sin put him on the cross. We all recognize that. It is part of our, our worth, actually, that the Lord has given his son on our behalf. And we celebrate that, even though it's, it's, uh, it's devastating to us to think that our own sin and a continued fleshliness then just reveals that, you know, we despise the Lord. But here, Paul just is very clear. Precisely those attitudes that brought about the death of Jesus. These things that you're bringing to bear, these are the things that brought the death of Jesus. To repeat them on the occasion of the meal at which his death is recalled is to share in the sin of those who killed him. That's Paul's obvious meaning. You can't really come away with anything else. And you can kind of modify it, try to make it softer or whatever, but Paul's not, in, not intending to do that. He said, you wait in there like you've been waiting in here. It would have been better if you stayed home. Why? Because you're just sharing in the sin of those who put Christ to death. And you're just going to bring judgment on yourself if you do it. And that's a very serious infraction. And let's clear up a few things, though, because we're about out of time. And I don't want you to go out of there thinking, oh, man. You know, well, I do, but I don't want you to think, oh, man, you know, without hope. Okay? Does it cause them to lose their salvation? What's the answer? No. Does it jeopardize their eternal security in any way? No. And as we get into the judgment, Paul says, after he talks about all judgments, what did he say? And the fact that God judges you shows that you're not condemned along with the world. So obviously we're speaking to believers who are redeemed. So do you lose your salvation? No. Do you jeopardize your eternal security? No. Does it create a fellowship problem? Yes. Is it quenching the Holy Spirit's work in the church? Absolutely. Is it dividing and disunity and all that stuff? Yes. Opposite of what's supposed to be going on? Yes. All of those. Is the Lord concerned with what's happening enough to intervene? Yes. As we'll see. So, with this being more than just an academic discussion, but an actual reality within the church, and because it's so serious, Paul gives us our first principle of a spiritual checkup. Look at verse 28, and this is where we'll stop, okay? But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat of the bread and drink the cup. Doki mazeto, present active imperative. This is to be the case with you when you come to the table. And now you've got some things that you can use as a baseline. What's in your mind? Is there factions between you and someone else? Have you sown discord? Have you gossiped about someone? Listen, you are waiting in there in the fellowship dinner time and in, in the breaking of bread at the Lord's table. You're waiting in there with the very things Paul says not to do. And he says, listen, if you want to avoid all these problems and sharing in the sin of his death, then what do you have to do? Examine yourself and in so doing, then eat the bread and drink the cup. This is to be the case in every activity, in every thought, every attitude, participating in fellowship with other believers, there must be a careful accounting, if you will, a weighing out, a testing. That's the idea. Dokimazeto. A weighing out, a testing. Derivative of dokimas that we saw just a bit ago. So the actual activity of figuring out if this is true and you're showing up to be one who is walking closely and, and approved. A scrutiny, if you will, an examination. Yes, you're forgiven every sin. No sin will send a believer to hell. But that doesn't mean that you can come to the table or communion with a spiritual, a continual attitude of selfishness or faction or pride or backbiting or self-centeredness. Paul says because when you bring those things unexamined, unconfessed, you bring judgment to yourself. That's his issue, okay? Paul would say because only when you've passed the test, when you've weighed that out, are you ready to eat the bread and drink the cup. So for the Corinthians, that would mean coming together in a spirit of genuine brotherly and sisterly love towards those who are present, modeling, remembering Christ, ex his example, behavior, commands, weighing them out, considering them well, 
and then examining ourselves in light of what was going on, even in this Corinthian church, and saying, is that there in my life? It can't be. I've got to fix that before it can come in. So that's where we are. We're out of time. And so we'll pick up right here next time, and Lord willing, we'll finish this chapter as, it is, as you have all the groundwork now that you need. We can easily see why Paul's going to say what he's going to say. Some of it's very severe. It's a little scary. Lord has the right, though, beloved. Wouldn't you agree with this? Just give me your attention real quick, and then the kids, I know they're cute, and they're going to come up here and talk to us. But uh, the Lord has the right to deal with our sin any way he wants, doesn't he? Isn't that the thing that really prompts us to obey apart from love? I mean, that's the, that's the foundation, isn't it? That, when you get down through all the stuff of our relationship with the Lord, the foundation is this. The Lord can deal with our sin any way he wishes, right? Because he paid for it with his son on the cross. And so he has the right to do what we're going to see in just a little bit. Because this is important to him. And fellowship is important. And unity is important. And that's what the church is supposed to do, to be effective and to function as it should. All right? So that's where we are. Lord, add his rich blessing to the reading of his word and, and an understanding, of course, by his Holy Spirit as we continue to meditate on all that was said here. Let's bow in prayer, and then we'll have uh, a cute announcement and a mission moment really quickly, and then we'll move on to our greeting one another. Lord, we thank you today for our time in the Word. It, it has been rich indeed and sobering, a little scary perhaps. We can certainly feel the heat of Paul's conversation uh, all this time. <laughs> has elapsed and it hasn't changed in its intensity. To imagine being in the church where he actually penned these words and answered some questions that must have set them back. Lord, I pray that it will do the same in your congregations everywhere this passage is read. So easy to become assaulted by the culture, to uh, have our own mind about things and not pursue unity but pursue our own opinion. We're used to a Western culture of representative government and and democracy and, and freedom of speech and doing what we want and all of that stuff, but you don't find your church that way. You find your church in unity, mutually submitting to one another in brotherly love and in kindness and forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. In a spirit of unity, then we come together and proclaim a marvelous faith, a redemption that has saved us and changed us. We show that by our actions and how we interact with one another. And so, Father, just have your way here as we always desire for you to. You have the right by your Holy Spirit, to convict us and to show us the direction we should go, to take us apart and put back uh, correct parts where the faulty parts were. We just desire you to do that because we want to be found faithful. We want to be the church, a church among many of your churches that are found doing what you ask us to do until you come. And we look forward to that time, and it is the time we desire. But in the meantime, help us be found to be faithful servants of yours. And one of those ways we can do that is the way we minister and fellowship with one another. We give you praise today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen.